0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Father God, be with us now. Open your word to us this evening. Open our hearts to hear and heed that word and enable us to live in light of it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 16 is a call to keep confident in the promises of God even when it looks like they're in peril. And in peril is exactly where they look like they are as we come to Genesis chapter 16. The great crisis of this chapter is clear from the very first sentence. Take a look down at verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. No children, that's the issue here. And it was, of course, for them, terribly painful, a great heartache, But in addition to that, for Abraham and Sarai, having no children was cause for a crisis of faith because God had promised them children. Back in Genesis 12 and again in chapter 15, which we saw last week, God had promised them children. They had this promise on the one hand and in the other, no children. And it wasn't that their body clocks were tick, tick, ticking, is that they tick, tick, tocked. Sarai was 77. Abraham was 86 and no children. How long could they be expected to keep trusting in this promise that flew in the face of their daily experience? It's the same crisis that we saw at the beginning of Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham called out to the Lord. But here in chapter 16, rather than pray, they begin to plot. Have a look again at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, "The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her." Do you see what's going on in Sarai's head at this point? Look closely at verse two. "The Lord has kept me. Perhaps I can build a family." Sarai blames God. It seems that he has failed her. The Lord has kept me. But maybe, she thinks, I can succeed where God has failed. Perhaps I can build. As Sarai's confidence collapses in the promises of God, she takes things into her own hands. The Lord has failed. Now it's my turn. At this point, we might have expected that Abraham would stride in to prop up Sarai's crumbling faith. Sarai, I know it's hard, but we must hold to the promise of God. He told me on that cloudless night that our descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. We must continue to trust in him, Sarai. Abraham, the great man of faith, sweeps in to pull his wife back from the brink of making a terrible mistake. What actually happens? Second half of verse two, Abraham agreed. That's disappointing. After the spiritual high of chapter 15, we might have hoped for more. God had shown Abraham the stars and told him his descendants would be as many. And it said Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then God had made a covenant with Abraham, giving him the land, uh, promising to give him the land. And it was effectively made over my dead body. Abraham's faith must have been soaring at the end of chapter 15, but by chapter 16, verse 2, Abraham agreed. And all because he, like Sarai, had lost his confidence in the promises of God. So look down at verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived If you read straight through Genesis from chapter one, by the time you get here to chapter 16, your antennae will be tingling because what happens in these first four verses of Genesis 16, it's not the first time it's happened in Genesis. A woman's confidence collapses in the promises of God and seeing that which she desires and thinks will give her her heart's desire, she takes it and gives it to her husband who willingly agrees. Sound familiar? Exactly the same happened in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. When Eve lost confidence in the promises of God, she saw the fruit, wanted it, took it, ate it, and gave it to her weak-willed husband who agreed. But if I'm honest, I can't look at Abraham and imagine that I would have done much better. Verse 3 says Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years. 10 years since he received that first promise from God in Genesis 12. 10 years and still no children. You can imagine the conversation that Abraham will have been having with himself. I was sure God told me we were going to have children. As numerous as the stars, he said. I was certain I believed him. But here we are, look at us. I felt sure that he had said that, that we would have children, but did God really say we'd have children? Did God really say? And of course, it's those words that the snake sowed in the mind of Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Here's the work of the snake, Satan, doing what he's always seeking to do to undermine confidence in the promises of God. And here, again, he succeeds. Sarai's then Abram's confidence collapses in the promises of God. So Sarai takes things into her own hands. She takes Hagar into her own hands. And Abram takes her into his bed. And it all began when their confidence collapsed in the promises of God. Whenever that happens, sin and sorrow follow. That's point two on the handout. Here, the echoes from earlier in the book continue. What happened when Abraham and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3? Genesis 4 happened. Cain killed his brother Abel, was sent away by God, and began a line of people that would descend into murder and anarchy. In the same way here, when Abraham and Sarai's confidence collapses, sin and sorrow follow. Everything begins to go wrong. When we stop trusting the promises of God we start mistreating each other. What we see next is sin, sin, sin from Hagar, Sarai, and Abram. First, Hagar sins. Look at verse four. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. The word despise there is a vicious one. It literally means to curse. She cursed her mistress. She thought, now I'm pregnant with Abraham's child. I'm untouchable. He'll protect me. I can treat Sarai any way I like. So she did. She despised and cursed her. Second, Sarai sins. Look at verse five. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. Sarai passes the blame to Abraham, who in truth was largely to blame, but it was her idea. She can hardly wash her hands of it. And then she goes on to take her revenge. Sarai mistreated Hagar. Third, Abram's sins. Look at verse 6. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Just as he abdicated responsibility in verse 2, Abraham agreed, Here he tells Sarai to do whatever you think best, darling. He's not learning very quickly, is he? He's doing what Sarai thought best that got them in this mess in the first place. But here's Abram once again abdicating responsibility, ducking his duties. What we see in these verses is that sin leads to sin leads to sin. Sarai's sin led Abraham to sin, which led Hagar to sin, which led Sarai to sin, which led Abram to sin, which led Hagar finally to sin in verse six. So Hagar fled. Sin has led to sin has led to sin. All because they lost confidence in the promises of God. What a mess they've got themselves in. And so Hagar fled. It's striking in these first six verses that Abraham and Sarai never once addressed Hagar by her name. She's always just my servant or your servant. They don't see a person so much as a commodity. And so they hand her around. Verse five, Sarai said to Abraham, I put my servant in your arms. And Abram in verse six said, your servant is in your hands. Hagar was wrong to despise her mistress and wrong to flee from her. She's no saint here. But I think we have to feel some sympathy for her. And so Hagar, the unnamed, unloved servant of Sarai, flees from her mistress's hand into the desert, guilty of sin and hounded by its sorrows. When confidence collapses in the promises of God, sin and sorrow follow. But, but, point three on the handout, the grace of God pursues. So Hagar runs, runs into the desert, runs from the hands of her mistress, mistress but remains in the hands of another. Because as she runs, she is pursued by one who knows where to find her and who finally addresses her by name. Have a look at verse seven. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said, Hagar. Hagar must have thought she was all alone. But in that desert, the angel of the Lord found her and he knew her. What he said to her in verse 8 was loving and challenging and kind. Loving because he addressed her by name as Sarai and Abraham had failed to do. Challenging because he reminded her of her responsibilities, repeatedly calling her servant of Sarai. And kind because rather than rebuke her, he asked her two questions to help her see and admit her sin. Two questions. Where have you come from? And where are you going? He could have said, on your feet, Hagar. What are you doing? Get back to your mistress. What were you thinking leaving her at the first sign of trouble? Trouble, which I might remind you, you brought on yourself. Get back there. What are you thinking? But he doesn't speak to her like that. He asks her these questions Where have you come from and where are you going? Why does he ask her these questions? It's not as though he doesn't know the answers. So, why does he ask them if he knows the answers? He asks them because he's trying to urge her to reflect on what she's doing. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And with that admission, verse nine, the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And that might have been where the conversation ended, but graciously, the angel added something. Verse 10, the angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael means God hears. The angel of the Lord is gracious to her by giving her hope and a future through the child she was carrying. Because God hears even in the desert when no one else does. He hears and he's gracious. But the negative consequences of Abraham and Sarai's sin will continue. Take a look down at verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. In summary, the angel tells Hagar that she'll have descendants too numerous to count through her son Ishmael, but that he will live in hostility with all of his brothers. He's gracious, but the consequences of Abraham and Sarai's sin will continue. We need to see that though Hagar's son would lead to descendants too numerous to count, they're not the descendants God had promised to Abraham. This isn't a fulfillment of that promise. Abraham and Sarai's plan hadn't worked. They hadn't pulled it off. God will keep his promise to Abraham, but Ishmael will not be the one through whom the fulfillment of those promises will come. Those promises will be fulfilled through Isaac, who will be be born in years to come. Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Because the promises of God are always received through faith, not by what we do. God will not let us work to achieve what he promises to us as a gift. The other thing we see here is that even where there's grace, the negative consequences of our sin sometimes continue. Just as Cain murdered Abel after the sin of chapter 3, We see here in verse 12 that Ishmael would live in hostility towards all of his brothers. Both came about when people lost confidence in the promises of God and fell into sin. And this should be a warning to us. If you're a Christian here tonight, all your sins are forgiven. And whatever sin you commit tomorrow, already forgiven. But though our actions are forgiven they may still cause untold damage and sorrow to people for the rest of our lives and beyond. Sometimes the things we do, they're they're like letting a tiger out of a cage. They cause havoc and we can't put them back. So be warned. If you know that you're living in disobedience to God at the moment, and you'll know if that's you, you may be causing ongoing suffering for yourself and others. If you're a Christian, you'll be forgiven. Don't worry about that but sometimes we and others continue to carry the scars. But what stands out from these later verses is that though sin and sorrow follow, the grace of God pursues. And that's what Hagar celebrates in verse 13. In verse 13, we see this, uh, that this angel of the Lord is in fact the Lord himself. Take a look down. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, "I have now seen the one who sees me." She gave the Lord this name because what happened was remarkable. God's seen her, and she's seen God, and calling him, "You are the God who sees me." Uh, there's a note of thanks. You saw me when no one else did. She's grateful to God. You can imagine this poor, pregnant Hagar stumbling through the desert, her tongue sticking to the roof of her mouth, and uh, she's out of sight and sound of, of everyone. And then she sees it from far off. A spring, a spring. A spring must be a happy thing to find in the desert. Hagar must have been overjoyed to find it, this source of refreshment and life and hope. But uh, but she herself was seen and she herself was heard and found by a greater source of refreshment and life and hope. The Lord himself was to Hagar like a spring in the desert when she needed it most. There she was in the desert, the unnamed, unheard, unseen servant of Sarai. And God came to her in that place and named her, and he heard her, and he saw her. Hagar, he said to her, the Lord has heard of your misery. She said, you are the God who sees me. In the desert, the grace of God pursued her. And he called her to turn back with the promise of a hope and a future. And she was grateful to him. You are the God who sees me, even when no one else does. And so she believed God and obeyed and returned. And verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Well, what does all this mean for us? Genesis chapter 16 is a call to keep confident in the promises of God, even when it looks like they're in peril. Abraham and Sarah looked at their circumstances, their lack of a child, and wondered how on earth God could pour out the blessings he had promised on them. They stopped trusting in the promises of God, and so they took things into their own hands and sinned. And that's exactly why any of us sins. We wonder how it could possibly bring us blessings to live according to God's ways. The snake slithers into our hearts and whispers to us those words that undermine our confidence in God's promises. Did God really say? And so we stop believing that God's way is best, we stop trusting in his promises to bring us blessing, and we stop believing that following his commands will give us life. Our confidence in him collapses. We take things into our own hands and do whatever we think best. When Abraham and Sarai took things into their own hands, it might have looked initially like things were working. Hagar got pregnant. She had a son who would go on to have descendants too many to count. But the promised blessings of God didn't come through that son. And in the end, their plan led to suffering and sorrow and hostility for generations. When you and I give up, on God and take things into our own hands, it may look for a time like we succeed, like we get for ourselves the the blessings that we thought God was withholding. For a time, sin tastes sweet. But what blessings we find are a pale shadow to those that God offers. They never really satisfy. They never turn out how we'd hoped. And in the end, they lead to sorrow. Abraham and Sarai's problem is our problem. We can't get the blessings of God by our own efforts, but their solution is our solution. You see, the only way Abraham and Sarai could receive the blessings they so desperately longed for was by trusting in the promise of God. They needed God to give them a son through whom the blessings that had been promised would flow. And we too needed him to give us a son through whom the promised blessings would flow. And he did. He did give us a son. The only one he had. In Jesus, all the promises of God are fulfilled. Jesus was that long-awaited, miraculously born son, descended from Abraham and Isaac, who would die on a cross to bring all the nations the blessings that God promised in Genesis chapter 12, an eternal home as part of a great nation living under God's blessing. It is only finally and fully in him, in Jesus, that the blessings of God are found. All that our hearts long for is freely offered in Jesus. If you're not a Christian here tonight, Christianity is not about what you do to get God's blessings, whether going to church or keeping rules or whatever it might be. It's about what God has done by giving us his son, Jesus. It's about the promise that if we put our trust in Jesus, we receive the blessings of God. Those blessings which you have, perhaps unconsciously, been longing for all your life, peace with God, forgiveness of sins, purpose in life, hope in death. God wants to give you those things. You don't have to persuade him. All you have to do is trust him to do it all. You simply pray to God and say, God, I'm sorry that all my life I've been trusting, I haven't been trusting your promises and I've been doing whatever I think best. Please forgive me and bless me through your son, Jesus. And you can do that tonight before you walk out the door and you can become a recipient of all the blessings of God and all the promises. If you are a Christian and you think you're standing firm, trusting in the promises of God, that's great. But be warned. So did Abraham. At the end of chapter 15, he was on a spiritual high, but under the right circumstances, his confidence collapsed in the promises of God. Pray to God and ask him to keep you confident in his promise, promises, even when things are tough, even when the promises of God appear to be in peril. Resolve to learn from the mistakes of Abraham and Sarai and Adam and Eve before them. And when you hear that voice, did God really say, "Remember whose it is. Remember whose it is. Cling to the promises of God and avoid the sin and sorrow that follow when we don't." And if you're a Christian but you feel like God has let you down in life, like you can't see how your current circumstances can be, can possibly be anything but a failure by God to keep His promises well, I don't know what God's doing in your life at the moment. But I can tell you that he can be trusted, even when to do so looks unreasonable. And that one day, all his wisdom and goodness will be made plain. And that even today, when you are hounded by sorrow, he pursues you with his grace. He hears you, he sees you, And finds you in the desert and wants to refresh your soul with words of hope and a future. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11. And even if your confidence does falter and you fall into sin, or even if you already have, take comfort in the knowledge that he still kept his promises to Abraham and Sarai. We're not saved by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of the object of our faith. We're not saved by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of the object of our faith. Tim Keller, in one of his books, uh, gives the illustration of someone walking along a cliff um, and they lose their footing and begin to fall. And just as they're about to disappear over the edge, they see a branch growing out the side of the cliff and they grab it. Whether they're saved or not has nothing to do with how confident they are that the branch is strong enough to hold them. It has everything to do with the strength of the branch. If the branch is strong, then even if their faith in it is weak, they're saved. Genesis 16 is a warning to keep clinging to the promises of God because even when it looks like they're in peril, they are never in peril The promises of God are never in peril. They never fail. They can't. So cling, cling to them with whatever faith you have. Take hold of Jesus who will never fail you. And wait patiently for that coming day when at last, at last, all of our faith will be sight. Let's pray. Father, thank you that though we are weak, you are strong, that though we fail, you never do, that when we flee, you pursue us with your grace. Thank you that in Jesus, that long-awaited son, all our deepest longings and needs are satisfied. Keep us confident in you and in your promises to us, and Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. In Jesus' name, amen.